You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Wow. Yeah. All right. So you want to start? Okay. So I know it's hard to interview Mike Dyson because I know him for a long time. So I try not to do the inside, you know, conversation (laughs) and be more objective. But um, I always joke with you because I don't know if you're Jamaican, but you have like 25 books. So let's talk about (laughs) what number of book is this? Number 21. Is it really? Yeah, it is. Number 21. Okay. Uh, Thank you. And I edited another one, the one on knives, and then I got this book with Jordan Peterson and me arguing about okay. political correctness. So, around 21. Mm. So, we're going to jump right into it. You know, you said, Jay-Z, uh, Made in America, that he is one of the greatest poets in America. You didn't mm-hmm. say hip-hop, you said America. Oh, yeah. And I was like, hold up, over Mary Baraka, Sonia Sanchez... Not Maya over Angelo, but Not I mean, them. where would you put him but in, in that in canon? The, in that company. I mean, I wouldn't put them over. I didn't know. I'm oh, okay. Baraka. I'm putting words in your mouth. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, I ain't saying that. <laughs> but he is. He's gifted. And he's doing it to music. I mean, Baraka did some of that. But, you know, Robert Frost, Gwendolyn Brooks, all extraordinary poets. Sonia Sanchez, Nikki Giovanni, you know, Rita Dove. But he's doing that stuff, and he's doing it to music, right? Okay. You can imagine Thomas and Beulah from Rita Dove set to music. There's an intrinsic, internal dynamic of musicality in the language itself, the meter, the pace, the cadence, right, of all great poetry. Right. But when I say he's like in the, in the league of Robert Frost, whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little house, horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. God forgive me for my brash delivery, but I remember vividly what these streets did to me. Imagine me allowing you to nitpick at me, portray me like a pickany. So you've got placid exterior, chaotic underpinnings, a suggested and implied conclusion beginning in a matter that is presented to us in Medius Ray, in the middle of the action. And so I think it's not overstating the case that at his best, uh, that Jay-Z takes his rightful place among those kinds of poets. So Edgar Allan Poe, Shakespeare, Jay-Z. I mean, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> I, I asked and Baraka this, and right. Gwendolyn Brooks and Langston Hughes and so on. Yeah. So I'm having a little fun with you on it, but I'm going <laughs> to, you know, the more serious question is this. Right. What is it going to take to see JV in his work as classic material, the way that we do see a Shakespeare? And is it a function of America to not see the brilliance of black folks who come from the projects, or is it a thing of. Um, just a whole different form in which he's doing. What's it going to take for him to be deemed classic? Yeah, well, everything you just said, right? Because think about it. Melville was writing the most Shakespearean of American writers, right? Who did Manito Moby Dick. Moby Dick, yeah. Manito Sereno, you know, I mean, the confidence man. 
And when you think about it, he's writing for Pulp Fiction, basically. He's writing uh, in installments in the local paper. Anybody thought, or even the beginning of Stephen King. (laughs) Now, Stephen King is a much more highly regarded now than when he began. He's a hack writer, genre writer. Stephen King is going to be seen as one of the greatest American writers ever, right? I mean, when it's over, when it's said and done. Because time has a way of, you know, bestowing virtue and removing cataracts to see clearly (laughs) what's going on. Right. Jay-Z, you know, is 50 years old now. But, you know, when he's dead and gone after he lives to be 120, we hope, you know, people will begin to say this genre itself deserves a kind of reconsideration. But Think about it. Think about it. And I'll be, uh, you know, jazz music itself was dissed. Yeah. Comes out. Uh, Good Housekeeping magazine in 1918 says, who put the sin in syncopation? Right? They were dissing it. Right? Cat houses, brothels. <clears throat> you know, circulated among the less desirable members of society. Now you got to put a suit on, maybe even a tuxedo, and go hear it at the Kennedy Center. Right. So, you know, maybe 30 years from now, the magnum snoopus will be performed, <laughs> you know, falling back on that ass with a hell of a gangster lean. <laughs> maybe E-40's sweet <laughs> will we'll be out there. You but know? It's, it's funny because, I mean, everybody from Du Bois to Alan... Um, uh, Adam Clayton Powell dissed jazz, you know, and so the question becomes: Is what JV doing a an embarrassment to black folks who mm. came up during a certain time, or is he something that you put your chest out and say, "Yeah, he did the damn thing. This is us." Right. You know, forget about outside society; they're always right. going to demonize. But it's the internal debate that we have. Yeah, it's a great point, and it's both, as you know. You're, you're a college professor and one of the most brilliant intellectuals we have on hip-hop and other things. So there is a segment of society, the political correctness, the uh, respectability politics. And I don't want to diss them like we don't understand why they are respectable. They're respectable because people were dissing black people from the very beginning. That's why we wore our Sunday best. That's why we tried to speak the king's English to the queen's taste. Because they were saying, you're stupid, you're dumb, you don't dress well, you're not smart, you don't work hard. So, naturally enough, we were trying to police our own boundaries to prove to white people that we could do all those things. Now, the irony is we're trying to prove our humanity to the people who deny it, Mm -hmm. who kill us, who castrate and lynch us. But but Jay-Z's not doing that, or is he? Well, what Jay-Z is doing, I think, is part of a culture. Let's be real. Hip-hop means the wrong Negroes got the microphone. Not exactly the people we thought <laughs> were going to amplify our desires. Snoop Dogg, really? That's what you got? Calvin brought us? Uh, too short? Do you want to rap or sell coke? Brothers like me had to work for mine. What's my favorite word? Don't say it. All right. <clears throat> so, like, really? That's representative of us? So I think that, <clears throat> and now there are multiple generations, as you know more better than most, uh, there is the, the feeling, there is a kind of respectability Becoming a billionaire, marrying Beyonce, uh, having children, confessing your infidelity on an album, uh, becoming more mature and talking about generational wealth. Yeah, but the beginning in terms of hustling and talking about crack cocaine and the political economy of crack, as Mike Davis speaks about it. Yeah, there is some feeling that you're, you're tearing us up. Even right. now, I get comments from people, why are you spending all that intelligence and a PhD from Princeton? You're writing about a crack dealer. 
Well, he's been legitimate much longer than he sold drugs. Right. But they can't forget the fact that he began selling drugs. Well, a lot of American families who are now political powerhouses started in moonshine and running whiskey. So, right. you know, a lot and, of us got dirty hands. And if you could put on the, the cap for the music business, which I've been a part of, you know, for a very long time, right. the secret that they don't want to talk about is that it, it was you know, organized crime. You know, it was drug dealers and cocaine movers and all that. So there's a legitimacy that goes on one side, like they came from the ashes and came up. But JV, he could be a billionaire, but he's still a crack dealer. Still a crack dealer. Still, you're dealing with this pathological nihilistic kid and so on. I mean, as if what he did has defined who he is. You know, I remember uh, one of the first sermons I heard of uh, T.D. Jakes when I was channel surfing and he was not well known then. And he said, uh, you might have done what they said you did, but you're not who they say you are. Mm. Right? And so he did what they said he did, but he ain't who they say he is because he has evolved. He has expanded his understanding of the world. And when I say he's a great poet, I dare anybody to read his lyrics. I dare anybody to listen to that level of dense allusion, braggadocia, metonymy, metaphor, simile, analogy, double, triple, quadruple entendre, enjambment. Right. And, 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 and doing it without writing it down. Right. Homer could neither read nor write, but nobody would call him illiterate. Doing it without writing it down, keeping pace and beat and doing it into a microphone on the spot. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. So as an MC, once upon a time, you know, right. the, there's a little illusion that goes on, which is, you know, when I was doing my thing back in the days, you memorized rhymes. You always had it. So when you came before an audience, you spit. Right. It's like, wow, you just did it off the dome. But it's, no, I've been thinking about this for of 30 course. days. And I knew that about Jay. So I always felt like and when I seen him, it's like, man, I know what you're doing because mm. you know that, that you ain't fooling us. But what I didn't know, which you brought out, <clears throat> was that he would start his, he would, he would, track a song doing mumble he would mumble oh, talk a little bit about that because now that was something i didn't know yeah you know you're sitting there like and then you're you're sitting there trying to figure the words to finger them rhetorically imaginatively trying to construct a sentence a sentence into uh, a couplet a couplet into you know these bars into a song you know, somebody might give you, Kanye might come with the, you know, with the refrain, <clears throat> and then you got to figure it out standing there. And if you watch Fade to Black, you'll see some of this. But that mumbling, right, that both um, uh, Pharrell, you know, talked about and told me that that process, it, it, it gave me new appreciation for some of the mumble rappers, although it's a far different art, <laughs> right? Because there's a difference between Jay going, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, turn my mic up, turn that down, and then you go, I would write it if y'all could get it, but being intricate will get your wood critics on the Internet. They're like, you should spit it. I'm like, you should buy it. That's good business. All right? So from the mumble emerges a clearly articulate phrase that is consumed by every hearer. Now, with mumble rap, it could be, mm, hold on. Fuck, promise, fuck, promise, hurt, drop, will hurt, drop, will fit, drop, will set, drop, will end, drop, will hurt, drop. You know what I'm saying? No, <laughs> not really. Yeah, I, oh, only part I got of that, walk it like you talk it. Hey, you know. 
now. But but to to the to you know. And I love mumble rap, yeah. by the way, because it's the blues. But, you know, it's having the moaning, t- having the teach a lot of folks who mm. quote unquote listen to that. Mm. There's meaning in depth into what they're saying. Well, that's what I'm yeah. about they, to say. They pick up stuff that, are, and maybe we're not supposed mm. to pick it up at our age. And that's a great point. Yeah. But it's deliberately obscured. Yeah. Right? Because when you could hear us, you still killed us in the streets. You still murdered our reputations. You still relegated us to the heap bin of humanity when we were clear, standing by the speaker. Suddenly I had a fever. Was it me or either summer madness by Rakim? So you dissed us then. So now, being a Baptist preacher, right? And I know Reverend Adriette Earl is here tonight from uh, Heart and Soul, that great... Mm. uh, uh, church here in Oakland. So, so the thing is, being a preacher, when when the, when the Bible says God will interpret your groans and utterances, I think there's a theological dimension to mumble rap without trying to overinterpret it. You feel there's it. a kind of grief yeah. of blues. It's the blues the yeah. same way. It's the passion. It's the cadence. It's the as you said, communicating one to another by keeping the outside world out of it too. Yeah, you're not supposed to know what 18 year old is saying. Not at all. You know. <laughs> But it's my job to teach them, so yeah. i got to figure something out. It's hard. Yeah. <clears throat> Both our jobs. I know. <laughs> so let me ask you this. You mentioned preaching. And how much of Jay-Z's delivery is rooted in the tradition of preaching in terms of it's not what you say, it's what I'm feeling? Right. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And for folks who, if you never emceed, just a little bit of background. There are moments when you are flowing where everything slows down and you can see words and you literally feel like you could twist them, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, you're, you're in another state. Some people I came up with like zoning. Some people would say it's struck, but it's very similar mm-hmm. to what I see singers doing church. Right. But with JV, how, you know, from your, your, your teaching the class, how much of that is, is, is rooted in this whole thing of connecting to a higher source? Yeah, no, it's a great point. And it's a kind of oral tradition that depends upon these mnemonic devices that are also aesthetic creations, right? They can serve multiple utilities. They can multiple functions. It can be served. It can serve you as a way of putting it in a pocket in your mind. Jay talks about being on a street corner. You know, he's he's doing crack, but he's got to remember this line. Oh, I can't get to my paper. So I got to figure out a trick to remember what I was saying. First line, then the second line, then I start doing a whole verse, then I start doing a whole song. So those mnemonic devices generated by an oral culture, but also, as you say, like a, like a basketball player in his own. I just, the the basket was like a big ocean and I couldn't miss, right? So rhetorically, you're flowing or like a preacher when you get going and the spirit takes over. Um, but I think the mistake people make, I mean, your point is, is absolutely right. The feeling, the intensity of the pathos, the emotion is critical, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't have significance and substance. It means that the feeling itself dictates the outline of what you're saying, the anatomy of your rhetoric, but it still has tremendous substance, right? Right. And so a lot of people think with black preaching and black art, oh, it's, it's a concentration on what is being said, how it's being said, and not what's being said. Now, it is true. Style is critical. But Michael Jordan had style too, but he still scored a bunch more points than anybody else. He could put the ball through his legs or, or Steph Curry. We're in, uh, yeah. we're in San Francisco. Show some respect for Steph. There you right. Go. <laughs> Used to be a great team. Uh, oh. Uh, oh. Oh, 
how the hey, mighty lock have the doors, fallen. Lock the doors. Lock the doors. Lock the doors. That's what you get when you leave Oakland and come to San Fran. <laughs> Gentrification's ills manifest themselves on the basketball court. So, <laughs> so, um, but you know, when you when you get in that zone and you're hitting those threes and he's the rhythm because, well, as with anything else, writing, jump shots, speaking, it's rhythm, right? I don't know about you because you're you're a great writer. I said, you know, when you when your rhythm is interrupted, it interrupts your whole flow. Yeah. Like there's some days I get up, I know I ain't saying nothing today. I ain't gonna try. I'm gonna go watch The Godfather again, uh, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna write today. But then you get up. On some days, you know the rhythm, you know, because you got to sit down. And I got to go 12, 13 hours, and it's repetition, and it's, you know, going at it again. And the best writer is a rewriter. Right. And I think the same way with the same thing with uh, speaking. So, yes, there is an oratorical dimension. There's a preacherly dimension. There's a kind of theology of mnemonics, a remembrance for broader purposes. And I think Jay has uh, brilliantly tapped into that along with many others. So two questions, and then we'll move on. Mm-hmm. Um, as a preacher, do you write down your sermons and, you know, have that before you do it? Or is it really coming from what's inside? That would be one. Mm. And two, if you look at the history of music, there was a lot of upsetness that, you know, the Ray Charles and Sam Cooks and others came out of the church and brought those aesthetics and put them into secular music. Yep. And they felt like, you know, you're compromising something that is really God centered. So. Um, are right. we with this with Jay? Yeah, that's is, a, is, is, is he robbing from the church or is he something <laughs> brand new? <laughs> You're such a unique interviewer. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's just great stuff, man. Yeah, number one, you know, I've been preaching for 40 years. So, of course, in the beginning, you know, my pastor modeled for me, Dr. Frederick Sampson, mm-hmm. one of the greatest preachers in America. And I would say one of the greatest black preachers, but that's redundant. Greatest black preacher is the greatest American preacher, right? Paul Tillich, the great German theologian said, I reserve for German theology a place of priority. So to say it's a great German theologian, to say it's a great theologian of the world. So ain't nobody preaching like black people to me, right? At, at, At their best. So my minister would preach always without notes. I thought that's just what you did. I just thought that's how it went. But now you wrote it down. I would write it down. I would write the entire sermon or I write an extended outline. I would write a map of where I wanted to go rhetorically, which I still do today. Sometimes I write the entire thing, but I rarely, if ever, bring the notes into the pulpit because I want the give and take. Now, the illusion is you're just coming up with it on the spot. But the point is, you know, you got your cues, your set pieces. Martin Luther King Jr., would have set pieces, but you would riff off of it like a jazz musician. You'd have a set piece. You'd go into the studio. So, so, you know, in 1959, when Coltrane goes in there with Miles Davis, he sketched out what's going on with Kind of Blue. But then you can improvise off of the sketched out right. chords and, and changes and so on. Same thing uh, with rhetoric. And I think the same thing with preaching, you know, for those who do that style at its best. In terms of Jay, that's a great point. You know, Ray Charles, uh, Sam Cooke. Remember, Sam Cooke was singing about touching the hem of his garment. Mm-hmm. And then he started singing, darling, you send me. And women tried to touch the hem of his pants. <laughs> there was a shift from the sacred to the secular, or as many black church people say, circular. Right. Which I always find interesting because it is circular, not beginning or end. So 
there was a lot of, as you said, upsetness, a lot of anger, a lot of hostility. But, you know, they paved the path for Aretha Franklin, but Aretha Franklin caught some of that gruff too. Here you are singing about never grow old, and then you say never met a man the way that loves me the way that I, I love you, right? So um, there is some of that with Jay, but he wasn't reared explicitly in the church in those traditions. Um, so in one sense, there's a kind of secular oral tradition that inevitably still borrows from religious identity and religious culture, right? right? The fact that you would have microphone being amplified, talking about things. Jay has a line, I'm from the place where the church is the flakiest. Brothers been praying to God so long that they atheists. But, right? but the right? reason why I ask this right? is because Jay may not have been in a Baptist church, but he comes up at a time with Jazzo, and he's exposed to the 5%, you know, now the nations of, of gods that. and earth. All and that. some of the best MCs have come from that tradition There's where no wordplay is, you know, paramount. There's no doubt. That's so, a great point. Now, and and he, is, he is definitely the, the legatee of that. He is definitely, and, and early on, I mean, you can still hear it in some of his rhetoric right. about some of that 5%. If he gets with... Uh, What's my man uh, that he signed? Uh, Jay Electronica. Okay. And so on. When you hear, you know, whether it's the 5% straight up nation of Islam, uh, you can hear, you know, my old earth. You know, you can hear some of those references, but the word patterns, the speech intonations. And, and Jay would be a more laid back preacher, right? Buster Rhymes would be like a hooper. Yeah. You know, yeah, Lord. You know, Buster Rhymes. Rah! Yeah, you, you never know, hear Jay sing when he raps. Huh? He doesn't go into that that sing-song cadence, Mm-mm. the one that Drake supposedly invented, even though we've been doing that forever. <laughs> yeah, but that's like saying that Lou Rawls invented rap. It's true, but not really. Yeah. What Drake has done is different, I would argue. I know a lot of people argue that, and, and you're right, a lot of people have done it way before Drake, but not the way Drake does it right now and not with the unique combination, the peculiar, because he's breaking out the song even within the verse of a song, even within the same sentence, even within the same word. Right, right. I mean, there's something that he's adding to that tradition. Although you're so right, the tradition upon which he builds has been obscured and people don't know about it. And, and preachers always did that too. That's you know, what just you're rapping and then next thing you know, the, you know. So. Oh, yeah. Well, you go into, as uh, at the funeral of one of the greatest preachers ever, Gardner Taylor, he said upon listening to another preacher, you never knew whether it was speech half sung or singing half spoken. Hmm. Right? And then, because you start off, I mean, one of the great ones, a guy named Caesar Clark. Right. Right? He's an old man. He start off, I want to talk tonight about Elijah is us. And then he get to the second gear. Then he get to the third gear. You better not fight the Lord around. Because mm-hmm. if you try to fight the Lord around, the wings will eat you. And then you had Aretha's daddy. You don't hear me. Right? So there's different intonalities right. and ton- intonations to what is the chanted sermon and the spoken and hooped word. King, I'm glad you, and, and I'm being intentional by connecting, right. you know, this, this thing with the uh, oratorical tradition of preachers yes. into, um, into uh, what Jay-Z's doing. And just to kind of give you a little backdrop, there are books written by police that are about this thick, and they're very clear. They look at the oratorical tradition and start connecting it all the way back to, you know, the oral traditions that we do. So, obviously... Yeah. 
those folks kind of understand there's something else going on. There's a spirit. That's right. And also one other thing, he does talk about Drake in the book. So, you know, so we're not off topic, but you divide the book into three parts. Mm -hmm. You talk about the hustle, you talk about the poet, you talk about his politics. Mm -hmm. And I was, uh, I was enamored with your take on the hustle. Mm. I mean, you spend a great deal of time and I wondered, you know, first explain that. And then I wondered if you titled it made in America because hustle is such a big part of what we're doing. And, you know, maybe you could break down how you, you really, uh, analyze the whole aspect of hustling. No, it's a great point. I'm taking you on the road with me everywhere. That's just what I did. And, you know, the great um, conservative historian, Walter McDougall, Pulitzer Prize winner, wrote a book, Freedom Just Around the Corner, where he makes the argument that hustling is the central motif of American history. Now, Jay came to that on his own, right? So he didn't go to school. He didn't go to University of Pennsylvania and study with McDougall. This is what he observed on the street because his magnificent obsession is hustling at every level. And the ingenuity with which he diversifies his expression of hustle, I think, is interesting and compelling. So, yes, the reason I spend a lot of time on it is because if it is the quintessential expression of the American character, then it's the good and bad meaning of hustle. The bad meaning, the scofflaws, the people trying to rip you off, the con men and so on. But also the edifying sense of hustle yeah. on your job, on your, on, your, on your grind, like you. Got three or four or five different jobs, different streams of income, trying to maximize your existence, trying to leverage your talent and do multiple things, always looking for the next deal, the next scheme, the next invention, the next creation. What can we do to hype it up? So in that sense, you know, I talk about Jay as a quintessential American because he's a quintessential hustler, although black hustle as a subspecies of that broader phenomenon has always been looked at askance. Yeah. Through a negative lens, you know, it's been seen, you know, in a way that was challenging to America, even a legitimate hustle. I spent a lot of time talking about legitimate hustle and his influence on, that is Jay, on LeBron James and on Nipsey Hussle. So when you think about Black hustle, though, whether it's 1921 and Tulsa, Oklahoma, and black people creating something out of nothing, white folk get mad that we got hustle. First, they call us lazy and dumb, right? I'm talking about the dominant white supremacist culture, not all white people. Call us dumb, lazy, ineffectual, ineffective, don't work hard, then when we, you know, and stupid and don't save your money. Then when we do all the opposite of that, real smart, go to school, save our money, pass it on to our kids, there's a lot of resentment and anger. Yeah. And a bomb was dropped in, you know, Tulsa. on those people yeah. in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1921. Y'all saw The Watchmen, if you saw some of that. So the reality is that Jay-Z does represent the best and the brightest of these American traditions and the more complicated acknowledgement that the underbelly of hustling was something that he tapped into first before he flipped it and transformed it in a way that many American families have done. So one time we had Jay at the station, and he talked about, this had to be probably about 99, 2000, mm-hmm. and he, he said, you know, I'm, I'm corporate thugging. And he mm-hmm. talked about looking at the business apparatus that exists, equating it to hustle, and then applying this corporate mentality to what he's doing. Can right. we talk a little bit about that? Because, again, we're talking about somebody who's not in business school. 
Right. We're talking about somebody who doesn't have these formal trainings, but he has the ability to really, you know, uh, break this down, first of all, in terms that we can understand and then execute it in ways that are better than the quote unquote corporate uh, models that he's supposed to have followed. That's exactly right. Brilliantly stated. Um, and he could be teaching at the warden school. He'd be teaching at NEB school, right? I mean, the guy, because a lot of them teaching ain't got what he got. Even a guy living in public housing in D.C. right now at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Oh. Just thought I'd let y'all pick that up. Uh, ain't got it. That's why he's lying about what he got, because he don't want to show us what he ain't got. The ultimate hustler in the negative sense of the word. So... Jay, as you said, corporate thugging, and he talks about on his comeback album after he um, had took a small hiatus, a couple, three years, uh, Kingdom Come, I think is a, a tragically underrated album. And he talks about how, you know, being in that corner office and being that kind of hustler and understanding what the game was. And he flipped it. I mean, I came into the game 100,000 strong, 900 to be exact, from drug money. Started your own record company, Rockefeller, from the very beginning. Now, economic exigency and urgency forced him to do so because he couldn't, nobody would sign him. So nobody would sign Jay. He said, forget it, I'll do it myself. And many of these major labels came from similar circumstances. So he's right. not unique in terms of taking black market money and flipping it and legitimizing it. So. No, no doubt about yeah. it. But as an individual black man doing that, right, think about Master P who did it in a different way uh, down south. And think about Jay-Z and many others, as you say, have done it, but not to the degree that he did it and not with the success and not quickly by leveraging that into other and diversifying his portfolios. If you'd have told me Jay would sell clothes, I would say you're great, right? He would talk about it. So he's now he's selling clothes, rock, rock aware. He's got a record company, Rockefeller Records, Rock, R-O-C, Rock, you know, Rock Cocaine, and the very name of the company is an emblem of what his own uh, hustling, uh, uh, you know, ethic was about. So, but he did all that stuff, figured out a way to monetize it, to diversify his portfolio. He's a billionaire now. Half of that is on alcohol stuff. Uh, some of that is on $200 million from the record company that's now into Rock Nation. Um, you know, he's got a business of sports agency, uh, you, you television also about, and, uh, and film division. You also talked about his relationship with LeBron James. It's a brilliant mm -hmm. chapter where I didn't know Le LeBron was soaking up game from Jay, not the other yeah. way around. Right, right. No, no, no. He was soaking up game from Jay because Jay, you know, think about it. He's coming up. Jay is a, a big star. Right. Right. And you'll hear LeBron quote Jay quite a bit. In fact, they used to have during NBA All-Star Weekend for about three, four, five years. I went oh, to yeah. most of them. Two Kings. The two yeah, Kings, yeah. right? And I'm sure you went to them. I went to them. And they would be sitting. That's where I first met Drake and J. Cole, both, you know, there and talking to these young men and a lot of other of these rising stars. And uh, they would have, you know, people come together and they would have serious engagement and, you know, not necessarily dialogue that was formal, but among the tables and so on. So, yeah, LeBron was soaking up. I saw him the other day quoting... Jay, when somebody was criticizing him, he says, if I shoot you, I'm brainless. If you shoot me, you famous. What's a brother to do? <laughs> right? And you know, I'm sure you felt that as a famous guy. People coming at you, you've been like, ah, I just no, want to crush him. not famous at all, right. except to build mm -hmm. collectors. No, you just want to yeah. crush him right there because <laughs> yeah. you're being so nasty just because I'm a, 
you know, a well-known person don't mean I don't have feelings and you saying crazy shit about me. And I just want to just get at you, but I'll try to take the higher route of the destiny and realize that if you go at them, then they'll say, look at Davy D. First of all, he's tripping. Secondly, why is he going after somebody who doesn't know anything and is not as well-known as he is and so on? Look at, look at Kevin Durant. Like, he's got burner accounts because he wants to respond to people talking trash. And I get that impulse, but you can't do it. You just can't do it, right? So you got to remember some of Jay's lyrics. So in that level, you know, everything you need to know is in, you know, the Holy Writ, in the Godfather, and maybe in some Jay-Z lyrics, or at least in hip-hop. So it is true that when he flipped it all, he understood the mechanisms of business, of engaging where he is, and he also had a local ethic with a global consequence, right? So here's that lyric. He says, you know, he said, I thought dude's remark was rude, okay? Talking about, you know, with the Cristal. Right. When the Cristal said, you know, yeah, black people consume this stuff, but we ain't fans of it. Right. So that's how, I, in one sense, that led him to become a billionaire. Because when he finds his own, you know, liquor, and then he leverages that and becomes a darn billionaire. If it wasn't for the racism of the cat, I'm not saying if it wasn't for the racism, he wouldn't be a billionaire. But the route he took says that that guy inspired him. So, okay, I thought dude's res- remark was rude, okay? Um, he says, I know there are bigger issues in the world I know, but I first had to take care of the world I know. So knowing the world you know, Begin where you are. What do you invest in? What do you think about? What do you use? Computers, candy, software, right? And then using that as a kind of litmus test to determine the expansion of your portfolio and and using, you know, hip-hop as the basis for becoming a a multimillionaire and then a billionaire is quite remarkable in many ways. So the other chapter we talked about is is poetry. And, I mean, we can can do a whole conversation on that for a couple of hours because you right. really go in deep with that but it's politics mm. so he has some landmark moments you know he comes up under jazz and others so he's he already is aware of of uh you know uh cultural aesthetics along those lines right but you know over his career uh He's done some songs that show a vulnerability and is political, but he also runs into some road mods. Harry Belafonte, you know, gets at him. He worked with Dream Hampton, who was part of Malcolm X grassroots movement. How much did his political uh, centering today come from these back and forth with Harry Belafonte? How much of it came from Dream Hampton? How much of it is just stuff that him, you know, being a guy who's no longer 20, but, you know, ascending into, you know, quote unquote adulthood, just realizes that he can't be silent on key issues. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because there's a misnomer about Jay in that regard. He's been political from the get go. Right. But he understood a couple of things. First of all, on his first album, you know, which was very sophisticated rhetorically. Right. Cashmere thoughts, the evils. I mean, just the wordplay is pretty phenomenal. And that was, you know, that was Biggie, that was Nas, and that was Jay Wright. That was the temper of the times, as Eric Hoffer would say it. But he was like, oh, because y'all didn't really check it out to the degree that I wanted you to. So I got to now learn how to give you medicine with, with sugar, castor oil with honey. I got to figure out how to give you the stuff you need to get, but I got to figure out a more interesting way to do it. I got to move your behind and therefore move your brain. And he made a decision, quite conscious. But from the very beginning, the dude was speaking about serious issues before Dream Hampton and before Harry Belafonte. And we, we can speak briefly about those, uh, those uh, kerfuffles. And, um, 
you know, he was talking about this stuff on the first album about hustling. We hustle out a sense of desperation and hopelessness and what they did politically. You know, politics as usual. Right. Politics as usual. We don't, right? He's talking about it from the get-go. Bin Laden, been happening in Manhattan. Crack was anthrax back then, back when police was out-kited to black men. He's saying this stuff all along. That's before Belafonte's engagement and Dream Hampton's working closely with him. So I think that because he had to disguise it, he understood that the average consumer of hip-hop wasn't going to take in the conscious rap. Yeah, but, you he, know that but, but the, the before and after from how I see it mm-hmm. is he started to put a lot of money into movements. I mean, sure, oh, he was money. taking care. Right, right, right. He was taking care of people in Marcy, right? Mm. Um, which one day, a long time ago, they robbed my stuff in Marcy. But that's all. <laughs> <I just thought. laughs> but but um, he he started to really put this money into a lot of things. Maybe sure. you can lay out, you know, some of the organizations and things right, that he right, has. Right. But I can't I can't see that there was no influence on oh, those no, I two major people. Huge, yeah, huge yeah. influence. I'm just saying. The reason they could influence him is because the, the predicate was okay, set. Okay. I'm saying he was receptive. Because you can, you can be influenced on a lot of people. They're like, yeah, I don't really dig that. That's not what I do. Thanks. Right. He, the, the foundation was already set with him. He's very observant from the very beginning about the disparities that accrued, that, that, that obtained when it came to black people and brown people and, and white folk. He understood this, right? God forgive me for my brass delivery, but I remember vividly what these streets did to me. Imagine me allowing you to nitpick at me, portray me like a pickaninny, right? And if, damned old man, I don't mean to brag, but if I don't brag, I don't say these people ain't on my ass, these white folk who are judging me, right? He's very explicit about that. Now, his engagement, obviously, with, you know, with Harry Belafonte, and to be honest, when Harry Belafonte called me, I was like, I wouldn't go that route. We missed the call. He said he didn't get it. <laughs> He went on and did it. Not that he would have not done it had he talked to me, but I was like, Mr. Belafonte, one of the greatest of all time. I said, Jay is doing it in a different way. Everybody can't do it your way. Your way is extremely important. You were, who were you mentored by? Paul Robeson. No more auction block for me. You know, when you got Paul Robeson doing it, bruh, that's a different, soft you. A word or two before you go. I have done the state some service, and they knew it. And when you speak of me, speak of one who loved full wisely, but not too well. When you got Otello, and Shakespeare walking down the street in Harlem, and that's, he's, he's like mentoring you. That's different than Jazz O or some crack dealers who are mentoring you. And I'm not dissing them because clearly they had some smarts to give him. But having said that, I think that Harry Belafonte, of course, challenged Jay-Z and Beyonce. But Jay-Z and Beyonce were doing a bunch of stuff that Harry Belafonte didn't know. But their method, methodology was quieter. They didn't, they didn't announce what they were doing. You know, I was with a kid at uh, Howard the other day. You know, he asked me, he says, well, if that's true, I mean, at, at, a, at a book thing, book event, at a, at a debate. And he says, well, why doesn't Jay therefore, if he's doing all the stuff you say, why doesn't he go on Instagram and post it? I was like, bro, what do people do before Instagram, dog? I mean, right. And, and my Bible tells me if you tell the world what you're doing, you already done remove your celebration in heaven. Yeah, but you, but right? you know, there's but a you, difference. But you're, a difference. You're, you're, you're in, you're in hip hop where you tell all the other things, right? So there's a reasonable expectation mm-hmm. that you would talk about. He ain't told you know, when he first stuff. went to Beyonce. He was very cool with that. He didn't talk about what they did. He didn't talk about the other women. He didn't talk about whether or not these rumors about kids. True. You're right about it in one sense, but the stuff he's bragging about, right, a lot of people, other a lot, a lot of people followed that. 
you know, they follow that, you know, that, 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 that model. Like I could sell crack and then I could move on to the next thing. So I think there's True. a reasonable, and this is what Belafonte said, you know, right. let these folks know because you, and, and JV by his own admission said that he could literally sell water to the devil. You know, he, he's talked about I his influence, well. right? Right. So, so there would be That's an expectation that right. he would, you know, be like, look, these are the things I'm doing and y'all need to follow suit. Yeah, I mean, there's an argument to be made for that. There's also an argument like his like his style, much more laid back, much cooler, what he did. Now, now he did start doing that right before Belafonte when he went to give out water, right? He talked about that on Kingdom Come when he spoke about what you're working with the U.N. and sat up there with Kofi Annan and so on. So well, there were some visible moments. It ain't like he wasn't doing anything. It's not like they didn't see. But still, he wasn't bragging about bailing out Black Lives Matter protesters. He wasn't talking about that. Dream Hampton eventually talked about that. Right. Beyonce wasn't talking about all the stuff she was doing, not, both in terms of charity and then segueing into justice. Because look at what she did with the Super Bowl. She ain't, she ain't said a word. Okay, she but, just performed but, but it let's, in a serious way. Let's talk about the things that he's doing. Because, mm. you, you, you know, it, it does at this moment in time, mm. in an age of disinformation yes. and deliberate distortion, yes. the intentionality of what he's doing. Right. You talked about, you know, in, in the book, you lay out the work that he's done around uh, uh, criminal reform, right. right? You talked about the editorials that he's written, the films that he's done. Right. Those are important. I can't just be like, nah, he's quiet. Nah, you, you have sold mm. to us since 1997 mm -hmm. that you're a hustler. That, that came up out of Marcy Projects, you know, doing dirt, and then right. you moved on up. So you got to let us know that in your moving on up, that you've also uh, have done these things, you know, working with Meek Mill. So let's talk about those things. Right. I, I think right. the average person doesn't know right. all that he's done. Yeah, no, you've named them, and I'll just add a few more. You know, Meek Mill is a young rapper from Philadelphia, 19 years old, caught a case, been him on parole since then. Judges, black and white, beating up on him, basically exploiting him. He finally got that thing resolved. But Jay-Z, one, one of the times he went to jail and Meek became a call celeb, Jay-Z wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. Before that, he wrote one on, on uh, the drug war. Right, and it well, was he a did a video one. to that. The, the, the yeah. video with the drug war, I think, uh, was Dream involved, yeah, Dream with, was involved with that. So with the drug war and the incredible you know, downturn in the American economy and what that did to black and brown people, He's he's written about, you know, the bail, the, the cash bail system and the way in which it's undermining so many people. He made a uh, documentary on Khalif Browder, who was sent to jail on that same premise, didn't have enough money to post bail, never had a trial. Three years there, abused by both the law enforcement folk and and the people who are his peers and committed suicide shortly thereafter, not before meeting Jay. So that moved him. Trayvon Martin documentary, the Reform Alliance, where he's trying to change laws in local municipalities that reflect a much more engaged sense of what we're doing as a nation. So a lot of stuff that Jay is doing in a very serious fashion. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. So the question would be, he's a grown man, 50 years old. We should expect you to do that, or should we be grateful that he moved in that direction? We can do both. I mean, you know, you, 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 you like it when your wife kisses you. You, you expect her to do it, but you're yeah. grateful that she does. She ain't got okay. to. <laughs> she ain't got to. I mean, you know, you want her to. You beg her too often enough. 
<laughs> right? But it's her own judicious, judicious character that allows her to be generous to you. Right? Okay, that's so, a good one. So that's okay, a, I can't yeah, argue yeah, with you right, on that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, I mean, there's so many other things that we could get into. Um, I'm just going to say the book is a good read. Um, Mr. Dyson, Dr. Dyson goes into great detail about that hustling thing, which I think we should all read and really understand um, the whole thing about poetry, which we kind of touched a little bit about. He goes into great detail about that. Uh, The politics and his journey is good. And then you end off with the whole, and this will be the last one. (laughs) Did he sell Colin Kaepernick out or did he? No, not at all. Let me tell you why. Very brief. I know people will get into it. Yeah. As you know, because you're an old school, serious intellectual, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Now, now Jay had worn a jersey, and then on Everything is Love, he said, tell the NFL we in stadiums too, right? So he puts pressure on them. That, that's actual pressure. Because when other people like that, Jay-Z, hmm, well, let's call him, all right? Since he's challenging us, let's talk to him. Now, Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, you know, other figures, leaders outside, pressuring, protests. You're not doing right. Well, teach us how to do right. Come inside. Let's talk. A lot of people may disagree with that, but it is an established civil rights methodology. So Jay goes in to talk. He ends up pressuring them. Now, if you look at Stephen A. Show, Stephen A. Smith's show today, he was interviewed, I think, on uh, one of these uh, hip-hop podcasts, and he's given even more detail where Jay was like to Roger Goodell, no. We have, to get the, we have to give this man a trial. No, not for my reputation alone, because we had to do more than give him a trial. We got we to make sure that we address the situation that he's talking about, because Jay was down with that. Now, Colin Kaepernick was trying to what? Highlight racial oppression. He was trying to highlight inequality. And he's an iconic figure. In my last three books, I have defended him and will continue to do so. However, when his compatriot, Eric Reed said that Malcolm Jenkins, a ball player for the Philadelphia Eagles, who sat down with the owners who had cue cards. You remember that famous press conference? He said, I'm tired of talking to y'all because y'all not getting it. It's about racial injustice. And he held him up and he, and he did that. Malcolm Jenkins took the eight along, formed the Players Coalition, and they received $89 million from the NFL owners to address local issues, stand your ground laws. How do you get young people who are being treated as adults uh, treated as children? How do we challenge uh, the distribution of wealth such that on local levels uh, it has a deleterious impact on young people? In other words, for criminal justice. In other words, they were doing the work Colin was talking about, right? Taking a knee is one thing. Now, it could have been clubs that Colin, Colin was also doing the work with the Know Your Rights Camp. He did camp. the rights camp, but, that, but I'm talking about they're challenging laws. I'm saying they're going, they're going into but local some, municipalities but, yeah. with judges and attorneys. I'm not saying it's, it's, it, that's my point. It's not either or. Right. It's both and. So why crap on the people who are doing the stuff on the inside that Malcolm Jenkins is doing or Jay-Z decided to do as opposed to what Colin is doing? I think we need both. And I'm going to tell you what else that's unpopular. There ain't been no real critique of our, our brother Colin Kaepernick. This is what I mean by critique. I don't mean judgment of him because he's an amazing guy. But even if you're an amazing guy, you could have somebody say, hey, let me help you with your strategy. Right. 
Given what your goals are, you tell me what your goals are, let me help you. You know, who's my man that just died from Detroit, the comedian, John Witherspoon? Right. You know, coordinate. You could use a brother at the crib going, where you going with that shirt? You know what I'm saying? Because there is another way. The way he did it was, was great. It stirred up the conscience of people who were there saw, who saw a Kunta Kente shirt. How about wearing a, a, a Disney shirt? Looking like you all-American. Hey, boys and girls, how are you? Fine. And then you get in like Samson, and you destroy the edifice, and you begin to challenge what's there. I'm not saying it's the only way, but I'm saying it's a way. It, there are strategies. And let me even, get even more personal because you are a Davey D. Um, I was at the shindig with uh, Tyler Perry, mm-hmm. you know, the one ahead out in Atlanta. And Colin Kaepernick comes up to me. He says, brother, I want to straighten you out. Now, a lot of people are like, oh, my God, really? You're going to straighten out Dr. D- I ain't got no ego. <laughs> Bet. Holla at your boy. Right? I said, but let me tell you what, what you do, though. That's what I said to him. I'm telling the public. I don't think I'm speaking out of school because he challenged me. And I ain't mad. I ain't mad at that. I said, but this is what you do, though, bro. I said, people pay me a lot of money to hear what I got to say. I'm giving you my advice for free. and You don't call nobody. I said, I got your number. I'm going to tell you when you text me, when you want me to retweet something you said, like you speaking from the mountain like Moses, as opposed to, let me, let me push back on you. Let me say, Colin, if you do that, I would, I, this is what they're going to do. Let me tell you, because you don't expect Pharaoh to give you a freedom scholarship. So you get upset that, oh, they're not fair. They ain't fair. You know this from the beginning. So you got to be strategic about what you're doing. He doesn't have that community around him. And I'm sorry, that would make a huge difference in A, his ability to speak back. Now, when he had to try out, he didn't give a press conference. He gave like a little speech. And then you, you, then you, then you just head out. You got to interact with people and talk to them. You might not be the one, but others could be. But so I'm all also, I'm saying I'm, is I'm, it's, a, it's not an either or, it's a both. Right. I'm also looking at his work with like Silicon Valley Debug, who have Love a long, that. long history Love of that, that very stuff. So there, there are those folks. Whether or not it gets seen becomes a whole other thing. So I, I hear what you're saying. Your point about yeah. Harry Belafonte and your yeah. point about Jay-Z and your point about. But, and, and, and it's not just whether it's seen or not. A rights camp is critical what he's doing. But these other players are doing like serious work on a local level with people who make decisions about millions of young black and brown people. Don't crap on that, right? Not him, him directly, but Eric Reed, his compatriot. There's a way in which, you know, the same way when Malcolm said that King was the greatest uh, weapon the white man has ever had. Now, you're saying that while you in Harlem, Malcolm, but the fight was in Birmingham. Now, if you'd have took a bunch of Fruit of Islam down to Birmingham, and y'all whip Bull Connor's ass. Assalamu alaikum. You know what I'm saying? So you got to talk yeah, about but, both but, ends, but, yeah, but, not either or. Yeah, but you can't you can't put Malcolm in that. that but he's women, women. But he's calling King a sellout. Can we can we at least say you wrong for that? Yeah, but we also know that you're talking about uh, hmm. you're talking about somebody who supported. And we're talking about there was a lot of name calling, so to speak, from SNCC. SNCC did the same thing. They called King a name. Yes, That's they, what they all had in common. They called him in and then the law, they're dogging him and all that. Right. A little cancel culture of their time. Uh, you know, with the, with the kind of... Uh, ins- not, not, my I mean, point both, is it both, doesn't help yeah, us. It right. doesn't help us. Because I could call you names too. That's what I mean about if you shoot me, I'm, you know, you famous, if I shoot you, I'm brainless. It ain't like I ain't got the ability to call your mama a name. 
I can do that too when people are calling me MFs and stuff. Oh, I grew up in the streets of Detroit. This PhD is later. <laughs> okay? Later. But it does, it's no good. My point is cancel culture is problematic to me. And to call, and I'm saying we, we, we defend Malcolm as we should because I wrote my second book on him. Right. But I wrote two books on King. But we never say, Malcolm, you're wrong for calling my man names and viciously setting a precedent where other people call names as opposed to calling to account systems of oppression that need to be addressed. And all groups do it, but we got to learn to do that too, man. Okay. We're going to have a whole debate on King and X and every whole other thing because there's a counter-argument to that for the record. Amen. Okay. All right. So we got a, a number of people that have questions. Yeah. So. so our first audience question is going to be right here in the center. Thank you. Appreciate the uh, subject matter. Um, never thought of uh, slavery as uh, probably the greatest American hustle, but uh, through the uh, conversation tonight, that's crossed my mind. Mm. Everyone in the room has uh, um, skeletons in their closet, so mm -hmm. let Belafonte, you know, and everyone else talk. Lastly, uh, I foresee a close uh, election. Can you give me your opinion if it's what do you think is going to happen, Dr. Dyson, if the election's super close and somebody just says, I'm not leaving? Somebody that's already there. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, they're going to reelect this dude. That's what's going to happen. I mean, look. Look, when, when Trump said I can go into the middle of the street and kill somebody and they still reelect me, he wasn't lying. I mean, show me where he was lying. And, and, and shame on Lindsey Graham and shame on Mitch McConnell and shame on all you people who claim to be Americans and who claim to love your country ahead of your party. You are feckless, spineless, subservient to capital, um, you know, kinds of political figures who have not elevated the ostensible commitment to truth, freedom, and democracy. I think they're shameful, and I think they're following this dude uh, who may well, because he's mesmerized, right, some of the followers that, that, that are sticking close to him, poor working-class white folk, but it ain't just working-class white folk, a lot of rich white people support Donald Trump too. Come out the closet. They're there. And they're, they're giving him millions upon millions of dollars. Yeah, but, but Mike, this... Uh, each but I, I want to finish the point after okay. David. I want to finish my point. Uh, a, a presidential election comes down to state by state. You know, California, he lost by four and a half million. So that's where that three point million Well, the electoral up. college. But, but yeah. He got the but electoral college. I'm talking I, about the popular vote. I, well, right. popular vote, he lost by three right. million, two point so, nine. So which of the battleground states do you see him winning this time around? Well, it's still probably Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio. I mean, you those, think he's going to win those? those? Those states have not given up yet, right, in terms of Trump being able, maybe Pennsylvania. You know, Pennsylvania, if we flip it blue we again, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very tentative. But what I'm saying overall is that the white working class that perceives Donald Trump uh, to be its ally and its advocate uh, will continue to reinforce that perception. And despite everything he's done to destroy it, like appointing a bunch of billionaires and multimillionaires and folk who don't give a damn about no poor people. So that, along with the Electoral College, along with the swing states, Florida's still in play. And look at, now he lost, they think, well, the Senate is a litmus test. So the last couple of races he's lost despite going down there. But you can't forget that when they impeach him, and they will, and he ain't going to get put out by the Senate because they won't, then the empathy value for him is extremely high. And this is why... People got mad at Nancy Pelosi 
your local homegirl here. They got mad at Nancy Pelosi for saying, slow down. Let's do it the right way. Let's at least be perceived as doing it after the facts are in. People got pissed with her, but there was logic to that. There was, there was rhythm to her rhyme, to the rhyme, reason to her rhyme. And now I think they're in a much better position, but I'm afraid that with the kind of infighting that might end up occurring and a bunch of billionaires getting involved, that at the end of the day, uh, you know, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Uncle Joe, if he can figure his way out, um, or Pete Buttigieg, if he's going to, you know, rise, because black people were not down with, uh, with Obama until he won Iowa, because uh, unbeknownst to most Americans, black people want to win, too. We ain't, we ain't for no symbolic well, candidacy. It was South Carolina that they came on board. I remember that Super Tuesday. That's where, well, yeah. After Bob Johnson made them stupid remarks in, in Bill Clinton. B- Bob yeah. Johnson, Bill Clinton, but black people, when, when Iowa went down, who is this Barack Obama? Yeah. Let's check this boy out. Like, who he is? Like, oh. And then John Lewis got the Holy Ghost. Remember that? The Lord told me that we must move in a different direction. So he had to leave the Clintons. It wasn't the Lord. It was your voterate who told you. And I love John Lewis. <laughs> the Holy Ghost spoke to them people who were right in here saying, we're going to unelect you if you don't support our man. But at the end of the day, I think it's going to be a tight race. I think we can't do what we did last time when people told me. This is what the black left told me, my fellow black left. Ain't no difference between Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump. How yeah, but, you like it now? But, but How you did, like it but now? They didn't, it's a huge difference. They didn't say that in those battleground states. And we yeah, were there. Oh, we were, yes, we were they there. did. We, 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 we were there. In Michigan, they didn't I was say that. right there. Well, let me tell you what. I, they were on television telling people to vote strategically. You write, 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 don't write, you know, write in one person's name or don't vote for the head of the, uh, the party here and so on. I'm telling you, people ain't that, they ain't that sophisticated. They're going to be like, let me see, I put the A here and right. don't do it. You know what? That was misleading to me. And I did see the, the consequence of that. I just think we got to vote strategically. That's what I'm trying to say. It's going to be tough, though. It's okay. going to be very tight. And without the impeachment, he would have been reelected again. For sure. We need to have a full conversation on this election. We'll come back <laughs> next week. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back. Um, Dr. Reverend Brother Deacon Dyson. Uh, I'm not a deacon, but a professor. Uh, you, got you got two deacon, of them. Right? It, all, okay. it all fits. Uh, I was really. wondering if you would, uh, from your best pulpit, soul-saving oratory, we would love to hear you get in the flow for a moment. Oh, is that right? Yes, sir. Oh, wow. Just on the spot. Just drop it, huh? Usually $100 bills are in the hats. Yeah. uh, And I get inspired for some reason. (laughs) No, that's a lie. (laughs) That's a stone cold lie. They told me to save it for the last 60 seconds is what they've asked me to do. So I'm going to give you some Baptist preacher pugilistic rhetoric at that point. Thank you for that. Where are you from? The South? Where are you from? South Carolina. I can tell it. I I can hear that, bro. I can hear that. See, black Southerners, white Southerners, we got greens, grits, and grace in common. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> uh, Professor Jackson, I uh, am um, a resident of San Francisco, have been for the last 75 years. And uh, like you, I've been you know, trying to observe what's going on. I'd like to know if you can speak to us about um, medical racism and the difference between uh, how other people are treated in terms of uh, the opioid crisis and black people. Yes, sir. And, and, and um, uh, the fact that uh, here in San Francisco, I believe, my personal opinion, that this city is more racist than Central East South Africa at the height mm. of apartheid. Like black people, Native Americans, black parents, pit bulls, or men. And I'm all of the above. Yeah. Well, you just threw it down. I ain't got to add, but amen to that. <laughs> I will briefly say, besides your uh, 
astonishing eloquence there that we, we know right here in this vortex, this, this liberal vortex, this progressive right vortex, that we also saw Free Ray Ricky Ross. We saw the rise of political economy of crack. We saw what was going on here in the 80s, and there was no sympathy. There was no deep and profound analysis. There was no hospitalization or medicalization of the plague. You're thugs. You're th- you're, you are nihilistic, pathological figures who need to be locked away and incarcerated, right? Then you flip it to the opioid addiction, primarily, not though exclusively, uh, with young white brothers and sisters and even the president of the United States of America. We've got to do something for our fellow citizens. We've got to figure out a way to solve them. We, don't, we hospitalize them. We medicalize them. We don't incarcerate them. We don't criminalize them. And, and, and what's the difference? We were addicted too. Our young people were addicted too, except they had as the backdrop social immiseration as the immediate fuel for the engine of social despair and crack cocaine addiction. Right? And heroin addiction. Whereas opioid, ironically enough, grows from largesse and certain forms of privilege. Right? I'm not saying it's altogether true. So the irony is that one is the product of desperation socially, the other one the product of certain forms of privilege, right? Access to drugs, medicalization, uh, and the medical hierarchy. There's no question that we have demonized one and celebrated or at least been deeply and profoundly empathetic to the other. And it extends what medical apartheid you mentioned in South Africa. It's medical apartheid. The same physical ailments that black and brown people have when they go to the doctor are treated differently than when white brothers and sisters do. They've done so many studies. The same ailment, right? We don't use an ACE inhibitor here. We use X, Y, and Z, right? We don't don't give uh, as aggressive an intervention, medically speaking, here. Because there's a presumption that black people can deal with pain better. And that we absorb it. I mean, animalistic, when you said that, not far off in terms of the perception there. So there's no question that that's something that has to be addressed and that needs to be on the uh, political agenda very explicitly so. Um, I assume you're familiar with Tom Nihaishi Coates and his article uh, in the Atlantic Monthly of a few years ago called The Case for Reparations. Mm -hmm. Reprinted in his book. We were eight years in power. Mm-hmm. And also his uh, letter to his son, mm-hmm. Between the World and Me. Yes, sir. Yeah, so I, any comments on either any of that? Great. There's <laughs> <laughs> great stuff. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, there have been some arguments that he's too hopeless. A lot of white people looking for hope. Hey, help us out. He's like, I ain't got none. I'm a Baptist preacher. I'm a merchant of hope. A prisoner of hope is what I think uh, Howard Thurman called it, right? Howard Thurman said, refuse to scale down your dreams. Howard Thurman was a great prophetic mystic. San Francisco, Church for Fellowship of All Peoples, one of the first multiracial churches in America, interracial, right? Great, great figure. And he said, Refuse the temptation to scale down your dreams to the event that you are now experiencing. Right? This what divorce, kids don't obey you. San Francisco 49ers may not make the playoffs as high as you want. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Y'all do have Garoppolo. Uh, so 
You don't reduce your life to what you're experiencing because he said the slave foreparents and ancestors, long rows of cotton and the rawhide whip of the overseer lashing against their backs, but they saw something different. They imagined a different future. They had a vision of a different time. And so in that sense, he said, you're going to be a prisoner of the event or a prisoner of hope. And I choose to be a prisoner of hope in that regard. I think the work of, uh, you know, Mr. Coates, Mr. Cobb, Ms. Kaplan out of Los Angeles, these new and young essayists, writers, and thinkers who are challenging us to think critically. Coates uh, is one of a generation, an extraordinary figure, a great, great writer. But there are so many who are now coming up thinking seriously and strategically about that. He writes with uh, extraordinary eloquence and power. His case for reparations has really jump-started a conversation about that subsequently, uh, even in the Congress, about what we have to do in order to uh, make a significant difference. So writers can make a, a huge difference as well. And he's written, and he's admitted that he got the Cosby thing a little bit wrong. He was a little bit more mesmerized by Cosby, but that's understandable. Cosby used to call up journalists and I think his first piece for the Atlantic extended piece was on Cosby. Yeah. And I remember calling him afterwards saying, I think, man, a little bit, because I then wrote a book on Cosby, that, you know, he was dogging, you know, you said you got a different name. And Cosby's like, you know, they named their kids Shaniqua, Taliqua, Muhammad and all that crap. And they're all in jail. And I said, you might be missing a little bit in terms of the necessary pushback on him. But his father had given him a different perspective about the inherent conservatism of many of these moral and ethical communities that saw Cosby's discourse growing out of that. I took a different route. I wrote an entire book where I tried to challenge that in a serious way. So even though I embrace the power and the beauty of what, uh, you know, Coates has done there, we would probably, now we would agree, but even then I had a disagreement about the emphasis and what we must do. But writing is so extremely important, and writers like him inspire us. And when I came into the game, you know, I was on the cover of, uh, you know, what was it? I think it was the New Yorker where they did a piece on the black and intelligentsia in 1994. I think I finished my PhD in 93, right? And now I'm trying to, you know, do this thing these 25 years later. So I feel like Jay in that sense, an old guy with the young people, but I'm trying to hold my own. Yeah, but you, pu- you pulled a lot of people through. Yeah, he's okay. been he's been you know the counselor and advisor for quite a few. You you, you have you, some sir. seeds in this world. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, hi, my name is Bernadette Onyanaka. I'm actually currently studying um, at Georgetown Public Policy, and I'm here in um, Oakland as a National Urban Fellow. My question is, what do we take from today's conversation um, in terms of a directive for action? How do we sort of embrace the the poetry and the hustle of Jay-Z. I grew up on him. You know, I was in high school when he was really releasing all of his albums at the height of his career. What are we supposed to, like, how do we then, I guess, internalize what we've heard today, and then what does that mean for us tomorrow as we go back into this world that is increasingly hopeless? As, pr- as prisoners of hope, what what shall we take from this today? Yes, ma'am. No, that's a great point. You at Georgetown now? Okay, great. <clears throat> Uh, you know, let me say, you know, I remember I was on a panel once. Well, it was just me and um, it was me and Taylor Branch. And and somebody was saying, man, y'all, y'all sit around talking, talking. What you doing? 
And Taylor Branch responded. He said, you know, King kind of, this is what he did right here, what we do, right? Because you got to talk it through. You got to be thorough. You got to think about it. Clearly, they did action, right? But it was action that was considered and thoughtful and reflective and engaged. And so I think your question points to that necessity. Although just sitting down talking is critical too. Because you got to talk the right way. <clears throat> you got to think about these issues the right way. And sometimes by reorienting, like if all you took from this was, hey, maybe with the Colin Kaepernick situation, it's more complicated and nuanced than we thought, and it's not either Jay-Z or Cap, but both and, that's a win. That's an actionable item. That's a reorientation of thought that might make me more open to different strategies of social change, right? That in itself is an intrinsically valuable consideration. But I do got answers, <laughs> right? I think that there are things we should do. Jay-Z on his album says, I'm trying to get you a, a million dollars of advice for $9.99. And his, his consideration was generational wealth. He says, I tried to, he, he tells a story about, uh, they tried to offer me some stuff, some property in Dumbo. I didn't take it. Now how do I feel? Like a Dumbo, right? He's literally on the record saying people invest in real estate, do this, stop spending your money at strip clubs. I'm talking about actionable items. Stop sing, spending ones and singles at a strip club. That's an actionable item. It's not one that the church wants to hear, though many of their members participate. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I guess y'all didn't want to. <laughs> Stripping for Jesus. So <clears throat> I've seen a few there. I've seen a few there as I was doing ministry. Uh, <laughs> I go into the highways and the byways. <laughs> I'm just telling the truth. So <clears throat> A, that there are multiple ways to achieve social justice. I think that's extremely important. And B, and the point and the counter argument that David D wanted to make, he was just sparing me because he could have right, destroyed part of that. I think it's important not to be calling people names. And the reason I say this, look, I know people who have less power shout harder. I get that. I'm, I'm not, you're right. But the, but the knee-jerk response to defend Malcolm to me is a problem. And I say this as a lover of Malcolm X, Right? I say this as a lover because when they defend Malcolm, they're defending their position of name-calling, right? Malcolm, he's the worst enemy, right? At what point do I hear people go, you know what? I love Malcolm. He was a great man. But calling King those names was problematic. They will quickly tell you where King was messed up, quickly tell you where strategically he messed up and made a decision. And I, and I participate in that because I've written two books critical of certain elements. But the problem I have with the inability to acknowledge if name-calling is the, is, the, is the order of the day, we can all do that, and we will get nowhere, right? But let's hold Malcolm accountable, again, not only for the name-calling, but wait a minute. You said King is a coward because he put women and children on the front line in Birmingham. Did you go to Birmingham? And if you didn't go to Birmingham, if you said, well... Uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. That's like saying, hold me back. Yeah, but, I'm going to hit he, you. He let did. Me, he, okay. Let me, let me finish and then you jump in. Okay. Hold me back. Hold me back. Because I would hit you if I could. Now, the, yeah. the rules won't let me do it. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Then leave the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. If you think that the, in, the, the, that the history, that the future of the race is at stake, 
and you're criticizing a guy for doing something, for putting women and children in a march, why don't you replace them with men? Why don't you take the nation of Islam and the fruit of Islam and go take a train, a boat, a plane, get there if you can, and then, that's an Alita Adams theology, and then arriving there, stand up and say women and children in the patriarchal culture. A lot of women would have resisted because we are fighters too. So first of all, your patriarchy has to be subverted and challenged because they are freedom fighters too. But, but they would say, then, then let those men's bodies then take the place and then begin to challenge that. I know you want to jump in. I'm just saying, if you're going to take the legitimate critique of a Malcolm X calling it a farce on Washington and chastising King for doing so, what are you willing to do yourself by putting your body on the line to challenge that? But you jump in, Doc. I know okay. you want to challenge, so, challenge it. The presence of Malcolm is the reason why a lot of things were able to be happen to, to happen because he was, you know, for lack of a better word, he, he represented a militancy mm. and people who would not turn the other cheek. Right. No, he didn't go down south all the time, but he was. On several occasions, he went down. They would snick in uh, at Selma. He did go to Birmingham. He was he was, a watch, he was at the March on Washington, and he understood his position was to be that foil, that he was going to turn up and was like, you know what? Let us work with you because this other guy is going to be problematic. The other thing is that the mindset that he inspired amongst a lot of people. We see that we see that footprint all the way down from the Black Panthers to the. Black arts movement, a, a certain type of way in which people de dealt with things at a time when people were being crapped on right. left and right. right. So I think in time, over time, the critique of King has softened because we were able to see and understand what he was doing. But I think in 1962 or 1965 or whenever these things were happening, you didn't have all the information. You couldn't just Google, you saw... Right. Uh, you saw a tactic, which even Coretta talks about, right? right? Coretta talks about the tactic it. of saying, look, we're going to allow ourselves to be beaten in front of the world because it, it's a contradiction to what the United States is standing for. They're mm -hmm. telling everybody, you know, forget Russia and forget the Soviet bloc, look at us, and then you have black people being beaten. So she said that was going to be a short-lived, it was a strategy. And I think, you know, King, over time, came to understand some of that strategy because he did talk with them, but he was also very strategic, I think, in terms of like, look, I'm going to turn up, I'm going to say my things, maybe he shouldn't have called him a name, but I don't think that's the totality of Malcolm X. We can't just put it as I, a, I didn't, no, yeah. no, I agree with what you said. I'm not, but see, that's, I'm, I'm doing, unlike what Malcolm was doing in terms of reducing King to an epithet, right? Malcolm didn't, but go, Mal but Malcolm Malcolm didn't go, Martin Luther King Jr. is doing tremendous work. On this, I disagree with him. He said he's a Tom. That's wholesale. And the reason I'm, I'm aggressive about that, because it's bullshit when it comes to trying to... I do see the consequences of Malcolm, and I see some of the negative consequences. The name calling, the willingness to think you're more righteous than the other, to think that you have a patent on blackness, to think that your particular variety of blackness is the only legitimate one. And furthermore, wait a minute, hold on. What law did Malcolm change? No, no, hold on. Okay. What law? Wait a minute, because we live under law. Right, the right. Civil Rights Bill, 1964. If Malcolm's not there, there's no civil rights. There's no civil Rights okay. Bill, 64. The, the Voting Rights, 1965. And Malcolm X, you know, the uh, what? The Fair listen, Housing Act in 1960. Listen, listen. I'm telling you, the laws were changed. For a guy who was a sellout, 
who was seen as a Tom, I'm suggesting merely that Martin Luther King Jr. engaged in serious reconstruction of society that was far more revolutionary than a, than mm-hmm. a black man calling white people names or black people names without having substantive no, that, that, social transformation. That aspect, That's all I'm saying. That That's aspect... That aspect played a critical role we can in terms I of... I don't mind. That aspect played a critical role in terms of the choices that people had. Mm-hmm. You know, it took, what, seven years for laws to get changed. Not something that he went and advocated for, per se. It was like, okay... Wh- Ooh, which one? Well, well, what I'm saying is, okay, you had uh, in 64, 63, the Civil Rights Act. Right, right? 64. Right? But remember, <clears throat> a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, the impetus for that was the strategy that was employed by taking these to court cases. Right. Right? So that's... Thurgood Marshall. Right? Thurgood Marshall. But the uh, Nation of um, Islam forbade strict political involvement. Right. But the Nation of Islam set up and had their own business and were self-sufficient and that became... I ain't mad at that, but if you, were, if you got a business in a segregated society, you selling to other black people. When you integrate the society because you have a possibility now of getting some of the largest that you pay your tax money into, that is a different strategy. That's a revolutionary strategy. And I'm saying what, look, I'm not, Malcolm X was a great man, but he was a flawed man. And the criticisms he had of King, if we could understand how flawed they were then to now, and let's be real, Malcolm X became a national figure right near the end of his life in terms of his national portfolio and presence. He didn't exercise that much influence where the white people went, oh my God, if we don't have to, if we don't deal with Martin Luther King Jr., we have to deal with Malcolm I, X. I totally, That's what he told. I, told, I totally disagree with I'm that. I'm just telling you what the, I'm, I'm uh, just saying yeah. that, that when, when he went to Selma, Right. where Dr. King was in jail, and he told Mrs. King that that's right before he dies. Right. I'm saying once he frees himself, once he leaves the nation of Islam, and he becomes an independent political agent, he has much more flexibility to be able to exercise his right. political but muscle. That's one year yeah. before he okay. dies. Okay, they're t- they're t- oh, okay. oh, we got it. Okay. <laughs> we need to I'm, come back and do this. I would love to do it. All I'm just saying is calling names is a funky thing. And, and the dudes whose name you calling transform the ability for us to sit we here all more than we others. all transform. No doubt. I mean, about because that. King's Some more than the militancy. I'll say this: the militancy that was adapted by SNCC mm-hmm. is one of the things that comes out of Malcolm, right? The 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 the, the stances that he took inspires. Kwame Torre. I've done interviews right, where he's right, talked about that, right? right? So, you know, James Foreman and all that, a lot of that is Malcolm, and they push King in many of those instances. No doubt. Okay. But I'm telling you, King was much more, what I'm arguing is that King is far more militant and revolutionary than Malcolm I X. think we all agree with that. Now, yeah, right. hindsight is twenty twenty, but at well, the time, well, at the time, we, you know. But now that we have the ability, <laughs> let's stop doing the same stuff Malcolm did, which is calling folk names when you disagree with him. That's all I'm saying. We I'm have one more audience question. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is yeah, our no. last one. What? Not the audience. Not the audience. <laughs> I'll just preface my question with, I think we needed both of them just the way they were. So that's my comment. Oh, so um, with the name calling too. With the name well, calling Well, I think that they... With the name calling too. So if I called you a name right now, you'd be good with that. Yeah, but Snick, 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 Snick and SELC had their skirmishes. Let's let her. Okay. I'm no. not qualified. Wait, we, we hijacking okay. your question now. Sorry about that. Because if I call, I'm not. I'm not qualified that. to debate with you. I'm just going to admit that. But no, no, no. Le, I, I le, let me let me say this um, with respect to the hustle. Yes, okay, I, I I I I like the discussion about the hustle mm-hmm. and that it's all American, mm-hmm. but the all American hustle 
has gotten so extreme mm. and so individualistic that it's just all about your hustle. And it's resulted in the conditions that you see right here mm. in San Francisco and in Oakland mm-hmm. of extreme homelessness. Mm. And I want to know mm. why is that not on the top of every single agenda, especially the progressive democratic agenda in the democratic dominated California legislature and governor's office. Why isn't that the number one thing that we are talking about here in California and around the country? That being a reference to homelessness. Homelessness. Look, there's no question that homelessness is such a huge problem and that a certain ethic of hustling that you uh, so eloquently speak about uh, is at fault. Although when we look at it, when we look at McDougal, when he talks about hustling at the heart of America, the negative meaning of that hustle has always been individualistic. It's always been about me versus them, right? It's always been about how I can get over. It's always been about how I can extract extract uh, serious social gain from a situation, uh, you know, game on some people, scheme on them, and maximize my own individual uh, accumulation of wealth or the possibility that I could um, that I could get over on an entire group of people. So I think in that sense, there's certainly a way in which that hustle has been negative and deleterious from the very beginning, and uh, it, we would do well to try to chastise those who would embody that. That's why, in an offhanded way, I mentioned the guy in the White House right now. I don't think we've seen a greater hustler in the negative sense of that word than that guy right there, right? Literally using, along with Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, right? Hustling hard in some of the most negative fashions. And of course, uh, the homeless situation will be exacerbated. the homelessness problem along with the housing problem, ironically enough, those without homes, those without houses, um, and those who, as a result of what James Baldwin talked about as urban removal, uh, urban renewal, which is Negro removal, he said, and the way in which gentrification becomes its proxy in our own day and age. So partly, and then when you throw in what are the exacerbating influence of homeless, influences of homelessness? And we know mental health is one of the critical barriers that prevents people from enjoying the possibility of holding on to their homes. Now, that's exacerbatory effect because we know already people at the lower end of the totem pole, those who are poor, those who are uh, working poor, who can barely hold on to their homes when you got the, the housing bubble that burst and when you got the fact that the greatest bleed off of black wealth in the history of this country happened within our own, you know, in the last 10 years. And when that bleed off of wealth occurred, we haven't been able to, to recuperate it yet. So when Obama came into office and trying to hook the banks up, which is what he, I mean, I'm sure he had to do it. Can you imagine the first black president allowing the banks to fail? He'd have been impeached the next week, <laughs> right? He'd have been gone, right? If Obama had a white Russian drink, in the White House, he would have been impeached. <clears throat> now we got a guy drinking with a white Russian. Come on, I'm just, I'm just trying, you know. Making extraneous gases, just Putin all day. So, <clears throat> so the thing is that if we deal with, if we deal with 
the downturn in the economy, the housing bubble that burst, the bleed off of black and brown, well, but mostly black wealth, and then the veterans crisis around, right, um, both medical treatment and mental illness and the broader impact of mental illness, then yes, homelessness is an offshoot of and a symptom of those troubles that have not been addressed. They are organic and they are interrelated. And not addressing the one means that we don't address the others. To, 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 to make your question, answer to that a little bit more simple, here we are in a, in a, in a solidly blue state, right? There, there is no far right that, that needs to be catered to. Yet you have over 40 million people here. You have the seventh largest economy in the world that's here. So those who have power have figured out how to uh, get in bed with or have folks get in bed uh, with developers, with folks who are making these decisions. And the difficulty is, is that they, many of these folks are black and brown faces who have what I call uh, cultural uh, uh, capital, meaning that they listen to Jay-Z. You know, they can do, you know, the cabbage patch or whatever dance is happening, right? They, they have that, so it becomes very difficult to see them as an enemy, where they go, black man, we need, you know, it's not really as bad as you think. Sister, what you need to do is you need to maybe uh, buy a house and get into these subprime loans. Remember all the people that were redirected to subprimes and then lost their homes in 1987? In two, in, in, I mean, 19, in 19, 2007, 2008. A lot of that was folks who, in many ways, as, as Dr. Dyson said, they hustled on their own. Like, I got mine, get yours. And so we're dealing with that now, the after effects. I mean, I'm in the city of Oakland. There's a lot of folks that uh, are not trying to hear this. You know, you're sitting there going, look at these folks who don't have homes. And we're not talking about the folks that we see in the street. We're talking about the people that are living in cars. You come on my block, there's tons of people living in cars. Somebody makes a decision to say, we're going to sweep these cars on out of here. They don't disappear. They're not going to San Ramon or Danville. They're just going to another part of Oakland. And so now we're at a point where we are acting like they don't exist. And I'll say this, there's going to be an explosion. I mean, all the crime we're seeing, you can't, why didn't I bring my car here? Because people are going to break into it. Right? Why are they breaking into it? Because they are, there's, there's a desperation. You know, they're not going to be punished. And you also have people who look and say, you got a Prius. You're one of them people that displaced me. Lastly, there was a lot of tax breaks that were given from Twitter on down. They came here with the promise that they were going to trickle down and make sure that everybody had something to eat. Well, you go south the market where Twitter's at, and you see a whole lot of people with nothing to eat. But they got that tax break. So where did the money go? So, you know, we, we're looking at folks who have a D next to their name mm. that made these decisions. And since he was talking about hard truth, that's a hard truth that we're going to have to reconcile with. You know, because it ain't Donald Trump and his people. Mm. We're talking about die-in-the-wool Democrats that would sit up here and say, you need to vote for me in 2020, who are sitting on this, is, this homelessness is on their watch in a solidly blue state. And that's hard for a lot of people mm -hmm. to accept. Mm -hmm. You got the last word, Mr. Dyson. They want to mm -hmm. know <laughs> how you're going to make this world a better place. I'm going to elect you as uh, at least the governor of the state. I think that would be a hell of a move to begin with. Um, look, I, I think... The reason I spent so much time 
about Malcolm versus Martin. It's not just an ideological debate. It's about a tone. We're living in a country that is so vicious and nasty. We disagree with each other and we have to kill each other. We have to hurt and harm each other. We have to insist that the other is the devil incarnate. And there are some instances when we have to be quite vigorous and aggressive about decrying the evils that we see. But in the meantime, we are flawed human beings trying to make a difference in a world that we have helped to create. Partly we have inherited it and we want to leave a better world to our children. So I think open dialogue and serious engagement and talking with people with whom we agree or disagree and restoring a civic trust, a civic piety that allows us to magnify the better aspects of our American nature is the only thing that can save us. And then when all of our communities, the lesbian, gay, transgender, transgender, bisexual, those who are marginal because of their ethnicity or race, African-American, Latinos, people who happen to be marginal because of their economic status, which is vulnerable because of mental health issues. Uh, in a country where we've got so much wealth and we're flowing in it, as David D. has just indicated, even ironically, perhaps even paradoxically enough, in a state like California, what we are at a deficit in is an empathy deficit that helps us understand the other. And if we can arrive at that particular position, not in a namby-pamby, we are the world kind of way, but in a way that looks hard and fast at the truths that we confront and then give the other the very willingness to concede the legitimacy of another way to become better as ours, maybe together we could pool our resources, think critically together about how to make this world a better place and be introspective and self-critical. Take what you do with deadly seriousness, but don't take yourself too seriously at all. That's where I would end. That. Uh, <laughs>